This message comes from NPR sponsor Discover. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can earn cash back on everyday debit card purchases with no fees, period. Transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Hey, everyone. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. And today's guest loves to redefine genres. Can you explain to listeners what a paperwork movie is? I had this realization, like, last year that I really love movies where people are, like, doing paperwork, where they're, like, walking down a hallway carrying folders. They're, like, shuffling through papers to find an answer. That's Brandon Taylor, author and cultural critic. And his thoughts on culture, film, and art encourage us to push past the superficial. Like the idea that The Godfather 3 is simply a gangster film. The third Godfather movie is actually secretly a paperwork movie. There's a lot of paperwork Shake in the that table. movie. Shake the table. Listen, they're like, do, they're like doing shady, like, Vatican deals. It's all about a bank, and can they get this bank? Like, it's paperwork city. Beyond his taste in film, Brandon is a huge fan of the campus novel. College transplants, townspeople, and the inevitable hijinks they fall into are his bread and butter. It was the basis of his first book, which followed a single character's life on campus. And now, his highly anticipated second novel is here. It's called The Late Americans, and it is a delicious read, if I do say so myself. This time, the story goes much further than the seminar room. The Late Americans is set in Iowa City and follows eight creatives, some students, some not, as they navigate their relationships to art, prosperity, and each other. They sleep together, they argue, they fight. To me, it's like a year in a life of a group of youngish people in a community. Woven into the narrative are critiques on how we love, how we create, and even the structure of the book is a pushback to the current state of contemporary fiction. Brandon and I get into all that and more coming right up. Brandon, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. My pleasure. My pleasure. We're going to be talking about your new book, The Late Americans, which I really enjoyed reading. The Late Americans is set in a present-day Midwestern college town, Iowa City. But it's written in a form similar to like a 19th century French novel, where you're moving through a very specific social scene via a set of interconnected characters. And we even see at least one character who appeared in a past book of yours. I would say that the use of this form in a novel stands out in 2023. What kind of commentary are you using this form to make? Hmm. I mean, it's such a compliment, and I, I'm so moved that you think of it as feeling like a 19th century novel, because like those are my favorite novels to read. There's a way in which like the very notion of character in fiction has like been totally eroded and it has like gone away. The idea of like a novel taking place in a place with a name and characters who exist in a social milieu and a climate and the fact of like there being characters in this book also feels like somewhat <laughs> like I'm like doing something chaotic. Because <laughs> I do feel like the notion of character in fiction is like, it's just a lot of vibes out there these days. Not a lot of character, a whole <laughs> lot of vibes. Do you feel like there's not a lot of clearly drawn characters out there in fiction? Is that is that the I is do. that the claim you're making? I'm not sure if it is the case, but it is certainly how I feel as a reader of contemporary fiction sometimes. So, for example, 
everybody knows like a Hester Prynne. They know a Gatsby. Mm. You know, they know these characters. They know an Isabel Archer who was in Henry James's The Portrait of a Lady. Like we know these novels like by their characters. And then yes, part of that is because they've been taught to us and shoved on our faces and we wrote all the literary analysis essays. But another part of it is like, who are the defining characters of like the 2020s? It's like, do most people even know what Sally Rooney's characters' names are? Like, do we know what those characters' names are? I mean, I do because I'm a Rooney tune, but like, you know what I mean? There's a way that like <laughs> yeah. these characters don't really exist as characters. And it's more that we remember the books for the vibes that they give mm. us. And part of that, I think, has to do with we live in a moment where it feels like it's impossible to sort of have a clearly delineated character because we're all just like mushy amalgamations of experience. <laughs> it's like, who am I? And yeah, so the contemporary fiction scene does feel a little <laughs> lacking of character a little bit. But, you know, that's how it feels to me. I'm sure that there are many counterexamples. <laughs> so all or almost all of the characters in the late Americans are reckoning with precarity in some sense. It's like the precarity of life after graduate school, factory labor, or of their intimate relationships. All the characters are living on the edge of some cliff, whether that's real or imagined. What feels particularly American about that feeling in the late Americans? I feel like American precarity is kind of a thing of our own creation as a nation. <laughs> like the, the <laughs> fact that we don't have universal health care, the fact that there are people in this country who go hungry, the fact that there are people in this country who like fight to make sure that kids in school don't have access to free lunch, the fact that that is like a contentious thing in this country. Also, this idea of like American precarity being a thing that was manufactured and being a thing that like we feel really acutely because for many of the characters in this book, if they fall, there is no safety net. There is no health insurance for them. Like right. you have characters like Timo and Goren who are two black boys, one raised in a white family, one raised in an upper middle class black family. And even though they both kind of come from means, the way that those means are structured, one of them... Totally different, right? And the the fact that like Goran, who was raised in this white family, kind of can't see that. <laughs> and he's like, Well, we're both <laughs> suburban. What's the big deal? Like, we're both like the same. And Timo is like, No, like it's not the same at all, right? And those two black boys talking about their the differences in their precarity. Meanwhile, the person who's like clearing their table is like this black woman named Fatima, right? Like she's who like needs to work this job in order to to be able to afford just to be in grad school to pursue her dreams. And that to me, you know, like that isn't like distinctly American. But that particular triangulation of like two beige black <laughs> boys talking about which one of them has it slightly worse because their bourgeois families have slightly different amounts of money while like a black woman is like clearing their table. Like that to me right. feels like typically American in a way. Mm, mm. Aside from the characters who come from generational wealth, every artist in late Americans is hustling or quitting art for something more professionally stable. And it felt like the book was making a statement about art and what it means that some people get to make art and that some people don't even get the opportunity. Talk to me more about that. The fact of it is, you know, I, I used to think like, well, like life proceeds by this series of like orderly transitions. And like all you have to do is like work really hard and then you'll get to a place and then someone will make a decision about you that may not be what you want, but makes some degree of sense. And like the minute I sold my book, 
I was like, oh, no, this is all just made up. This is all so arbitrary. Like, nothing about this makes any sense. It's just like somebody, there's like some person somewhere flipping a switch being like, yes, no, yes, no. Like, for no rhyme or reason. Mm -hmm. And when I sold my book, I felt myself immediately become a commodity. Like, I felt myself, my identity become a commodity and that people could trade on and that like my Mm. art would also become this commodity that people were trading on. And I had all this like confusion and frustration about that. And like part of the book was like trying to write a book that was honest about that feeling Mm. of being turned into a commodity. And so the book to me, it's about that war between, you know, the part of yourself that like wants to yell at the top of your one true voice and to like live in a society that is trying its hardest to persuade you not to. Hmm. I keep thinking about this thing that you just said, especially for marginalized people. There's like a an expectation of what the marketplace will want from you or your art. You use this phrase like we're living in a world that is trying its hardest to persuade you not to use your voice. We're living in a world that also is trying to persuade you from using your voice or to only use your voice in a way that's recognizable as performing your identity or performing your trauma. And I feel like that (laughs) idea also came up in the book quite a few times. Oh, yeah. I mean, and how could it not? You know, I, um, I started writing this book in 2019 and there are a lot of conversations in social media and in our country's newspapers around race and around how race should and could be written about. And I found a lot of that stuff like deeply boring. <laughs> I was just like, wh- like, who says that this is how Black people sound? Like a lot of the kind of essentialist logic and rhetoric around race and art that was happening in 2018, 2019 felt like deeply harmful to like anybody trying to make real art. Cause you're like, well, that's not like, you mean that there's a scaffold and I have to like fit myself into it. Like, I don't really Mm. understand why. And I felt that scaffold kind of coming for me a bit. I felt myself being folded up into categories that didn't make sense for me or my art. I'm black. I'm queer. I'm from Alabama. I grew up on a farm. And my first book I wrote, I thought I was writing like a like a novel like Camus, like about loneliness and alienation that takes place in a Midwestern college town. But a lot of those early blurbs about the book were like, yes, this like queer coming of age tale about a black southerner and his traumatic past. And I'm like, there's like one chapter about that character's past in the whole book. Like, I don't really, (laughs) that's not really what I was doing. And, you know, like, a lot of people read my first book as being primarily a novel about race. Hmm. But again, it was like this thing of, like, my identity becoming the dominant (laughs) narrative of (laughs) the book. And I'm like, that's not really what the book is about. And, yeah, I mean, there is a way in which, like, our identities become marketing slogans for our art. Hmm. And to be clear, that happens to everybody. But I do think that, like, the people it happens in the most totalizing fashion to just so happen to be people who are not straight white men. Just so happen. Who, who can say why? <laughs> this brings me to the first character we meet in the book, Seamus. He is a white poetry MFA student who's on the combative side. Like he's critical of art's merit being tied intrinsically to the author's air quotes, lived experience or capital I identity. 
But also he's afraid of what it would mean if he were to capitalize on that. This is a quote from the omniscient narrator. If he wrote a poem about it, about his life, they would call it brilliant. They would say it was his best work, as if everything he had ever done before had been mere illusion. Smokescreen. He knew they would call it good, call it vulnerable. And what was worse than that? Through this character, it feels like there's a commentary that exploration of personal history should not be the aim of art. And it sounds like that's what you just said. (laughs) (laughs) So I wonder what should be the aim of art instead? First of all, I believe every artist should get to set the aims for their art. I think in a just world, we as readers, as people who engage art, would come to an art and try to determine what are the terms of engagement that the artist has set for this work? I do think that there is a way of reading and engaging with art that privileges quote-unquote rawness and quote-unquote vulnerability and that privileges a certain kind of like biographical interrogation. (laughs) And I think that we're in trouble when we expect that from all art. And, you know, I felt this my own self. Like when I would write what to me felt like my most ambitious works, I would put them up for a workshop and people would be like, yeah, but like, where's the you in this? Like, where's the person, the writer in this? Mm. Or like when I would write something that felt to me like quite crafted and quite constructed, reviewers out in the world would be like, this is so raw. This is so visceral. And I'm like, no, like I worked really hard on making those sentences like very regimented and very concise and very, you know, whatever. And what was happening instead was like people were reading my own biography back into my prose and it was distorting <laughs> the actual experience of the narrative. Art can have much more ambitious aims than just like expressing a thing that happened to me when I was five. Now that that's minor, but like, it's not, (laughs) it's not everything either. Coming up, Brandon and I explore character motivations in the late Americans. And he argues the importance of sex scenes in literature. This message is brought to you by Apple Pay. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the Wallet app and you're good to go. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Debit card users, Discover has something especially for you. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can start earning cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cash back on debit purchases because cash back isn't just for credit cards. Plus, there are no fees, period. Finally, the game-changing checking account you deserve. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. This message comes from NPR sponsor Carvana, who wants you to know that you can shop for your next car the convenient way, 100% online with Carvana. Carvana has thousands of vehicles that'll fit all sorts of budgets. Visit carvana.com to shop for vehicles the convenient way. This message comes from Jackson. Seek clarity in retirement planning at Jackson.com. Jackson is short for Jackson Financial, Inc., Jackson National Life Insurance Company, Lansing, Michigan, and Jackson National Life Insurance Company of New York. Purchase New York. This message comes from NPR sponsor Comcast. 
Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Learn more at Comcast.com slash Project Up. At this year's Oscars, Oppenheimer took home the award for Best Picture, Emma Stone and Robert Downey Jr. also picked up wins, and Ryan Gosling brought the Kennergy. For a recap of all the highlights, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. To make a little bit of a turn, ooh, this is a book that features a lot of sex between men. And sex is a vital part of how these interlocking, interconnecting relationships function. I think it's used elegantly to tell you more about the characters and the most intimate parts of themselves. I feel like Though, in this moment where you're releasing the book, we are in a cultural moment that is deeply chaste. <laughs> what do we gain from having sex scenes in our books? Mm. The truth is I don't think about it that often because I wouldn't know how to write any other way. My first literary education, the first books I read were romance novels. And like those books have sex in them. And Hell yeah. I remember being a kid and like reading some Linda Lyle Miller and Kathleen Woodywis and being like, oh my gosh, like, yeah, they're like doing it and feeling excited about it. But also like leaving those scenes, my heart would be pounding. Like I would feel just so just like hot all over, not from like a point of like titillation, but like, oh my gosh, like these characters are like like experiencing so many things just because of the quality of the writing. The writing would just like bring me into the world of the characters. I want to write sex and fiction that feels as mundane as real sex can feel, as exciting as real sex can feel, as painful and anxiety inducing as sex in real life can feel. Like I'm just like trying to capture at all times, like a sort of realistic approach to sex. Like I'm not trying to problematize it. I'm not trying to make it more than it is or less than it is. And I'm just trying to reflect back like a realistic relationship to sex in the fiction. And I think that when we leave aside sex from art, Mm -hmm. that's making an argument about like how important that aspect of life is or isn't. And I think I owe it to my characters to be honest about what they do with their bodies. And in the same way that like, you know, I'm going to write them cutting their hand open. I'm going to write them experiencing pleasure or pain in other ways as well. Mm. And so it feels really important. Although what I will also say is that when I workshopped one of the chapters from this book, it was the scene where Theodore and Timo have sex in a laundromat bathroom. My teacher was like, was this necessary? This was quite graphic. And I was like, First of all, it was not that graphic. It was not that graphic. No. And then and then they were like, but they don't discuss their STD status until like after they have sex. And I'm like, well, it's like that sometimes. Like I <laughs> people don't always behave. As like a pamphlet would outline them behaving yeah, that I'm you like, might receive in school. I'm like, they weren't thinking about that. They were just thinking about how they like, really missed each other and wanted to have sex. Like that's what they were thinking about. Hmm. Kudos to you because it was a hot scene to read. The conversation they have before they have sex is like them taking little inches back toward each other. And so the sex feels like a culmination. I found their relationship to be among the most touching in the book. And I'm not sure that I would have been able to attach to them in the same way Mm. if I hadn't known how they related to each other sexually. That makes me really happy. I mean, I'm, I'm so glad because that was for me as well. I felt like I 
I was discovering that it's not like I knew that they would like do it in the bathroom when I was writing that scene. I felt like I was discovering it alongside the characters. The sex takes over for expressing what the character couldn't express with words because they were beyond him. And he just like, because he can't, he doesn't know how to say like, thank you for seeing me. And instead he knew how to say it with his body, you know? And and that to me is just like, you know, what better thing? Hmm. How much more human can you get? How much, right? Like we do things all the time where it's like, you know, I grew up in a very difficult family. There was not a lot of talking. And my mom she was very strict and like a very brutal person. And my dad would never interfere. That was his thing. He's like, that's between you two. I'm not going to get in between that woman and her children. Like she's going to raise you how she wants. But there were moments where like he wouldn't say anything after she would spank me or whatever, but he would like do something nice. He would like put like, like a pear on a plate and peel it and like give it to me. And like, he would like let me play my Game Boy after school or something. Like, there were these ways that he had of expressing with gesture and touch that he couldn't. And I think, like, for Fyodor as well, like, he says similar things about his mom where it's like, she never said that she loved him, but it was, her love was clear in the tightness of his bed sheets and in the starch of his clothes, like, all the things that she had done to take care of him. Mm -hmm. And I think the sex is a part of that. Touch and physicality and gesture and sex and all that stuff takes over for expression where verbal language fails us or just like can't go, you know? Like there are things I feel like I can say to a friend just with a touch that I can't say with words sometimes. Mm, mm, mm. You know, Timo and Fyodor are one of the many different combinations of couples that you feature in the book. And Part of why they have such a fraught off-again, on-again relationship is because they really struggle to bridge their class divide. (laughs) I'm really interested in the ways that you write about class. I feel like in a lot of campus novels, they're about the differences of class that become stark in friend groups. And that is present in this book. But in this novel, I feel like the class differences are yelling and screaming at me in the intimate and romantic relationships. I wonder, how do intimate relationships become a microcosm of class conflicts as we experience them in the world? And how can we love through them? Mm. There are a lot of articles about loving across race. We don't talk enough about loving across class. (laughs) Like we don't... (laughs) Shake it up, wake it up. We don't talk enough about it. And I feel like my good sis Sal Runes, uh, Sally Rooney, she, like her novel, like when people say that her novels are Marxist, that's what they mean. It's like she talks about class and like intimate relationships. And I'm like, not enough because it's wild. And... One thing that I was trying to write in this book is like what happens when you have various intimate friendships and relationships and there's always strife. So like Timo is just like, well, Theodore, you don't understand me because you like killing animals and I'm a vegetarian. Because he works in the he works in, in a meat, a, packing, a meat plant. packing plant. Yeah. And Timo's like, why don't you just get a different job? And Theodore's like, what do you what are you talking about? Do you have you ever had a job? <laughs> like you've never, you don't know how hard it is <laughs> to get a job. You know, it just comes down to, like, there are things that are difficult to explain to your significant other when you just have very different contexts and milieu. You know, there was someone, a romantic partner I had. We would get into these conflicts 
where I had a lot of friends who were in graduate school. He was not in graduate school. He was working class and he wanted to be a writer as well. And I was at this writing program and I would say, oh yeah, like I was talking to a friend of mine today. He's like, he's so exhausted because he had to teach all day. And this guy I was, I was sort of seeing for a number of years was like, oh yeah, if he's so tired, like why doesn't he like get a job at Walmart? That's tired. And like he would like get so enraged anytime I expressed anything about my writing friends being exhausted with being exploited as adjuncts. And I'm like, there's no conflict here. We are all being exploited. Like, we can all start the revolution together. But yeah, there are all these things that would again and again come up because of class. And and often I think that these conflicts are just because people don't feel listened to, especially in intimate relationships. People don't feel listened to. And that irresolution about class becomes a fight about literally anything nearby. Fights about movies are really fights about class if there's like this class Mm. difference. And it's like, well, you just don't understand. And it's like a very pointed, you don't understand (laughs) that has all this freighted meaning and stuff. I guess it's like anything else though in love and in relationship. It seems like even like the level below that is like, how willing are you to be humbled? (laughs) Oh, so true. Oh my gosh. How willing are you to be humbled? Oh my gosh. You know, some people, a lot, some people, not nearly enough. (laughs) (laughs) Not not nearly enough. Brandon, thank you so much for joining us today. This was so delightful. This was a pleasure. It was so much fun. That was author Brandon Taylor. His new novel, The Late Americans, is out right now. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Liam McBain. Alexis Williams. Our editor is Jessica Placzek. Engineering support came from Patrick Murray. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of programming is Yolanda Sanguini. Our senior VP of programming is Anya Grundman. All right, that's all for this episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Talk soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. The Capital One Venture X business card earns unlimited double miles on every purchase. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Terms and conditions apply. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash VentureXBusiness. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. The Capital One Venture X business card earns unlimited double miles on every purchase. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Terms and conditions apply. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash VentureXBusiness. How can a story feel uniquely Latin American and universal? You'll have to listen to Radio Ambulante, NPR's award-winning Spanish-language podcast, to find out. For over a decade, we've told stories of love and migration, youth and politics, the environment, food, and families from everywhere Spanish is spoken. Escucha ahora el podcast Radio Ambulante desde NPR.